Before we get started, I wanted to introduce someone to you, um, Dr. Gary Page. Gary, if you'll begin to make your way up here, that'd be great. I'll, uh, I'll move the microphone over here for you so you can use it, but you might need it a little taller than I do here, maybe up to here, I don't know. Um, Gary has been a certified public accountant and a certified financial professional. He's been serving clients ever since 1975. He graduated with a bachelor's back then. He went on to earn an MBA and then a doctor of business administration. Gary has taught at several different colleges, most recently in University of Southern Maine and um, University of Maine at Augusta, Messiah College as well as other places. And Gary is practicing here in South Carolina, but he has a heart to serve people uh, in learning how to be good stewards of God's finances because he believes that, that as they do that, they'll experience freedom and then also be able to be agents of God's grace in helping to build the kingdom. So Gary is going to be leading a class for us. I want him to tell you a little bit about that class, if you will, please. And I don't know what the height that is. You might want to hold it in your hand. I don't know what you'd like. So Gary. Okay. Our hard attitudes and uh, thanks. All right. And uh, but there's a lot of uh, practical uh, things in there as well. Now, counselors will tell you that uh, money problems at their core really aren't money problems. And uh, Dave Ramsey is uh, famous for saying that financial success is 75% behavior and 25% uh, practical knowledge. I I agree with that. Uh, all those letters and things after my name have to do with the 25% part, not the 75% part. Just FYI. Uh, we, will, we will deal with both in this course. And I think who, I was thinking who, who, who would benefit from this course? Well, I think it's three, three groups of people. I, I think that if you're, maybe you're, you're young, you're having some struggles with finances, or you might say to me, I, I, I don't really know much about it. Well, I would say this course is for you. Now maybe, <clears throat> maybe you've, uh, the Lord has really, excuse me, <clears throat> the Lord has blessed you materially. You don't really have to think about finances much anymore, but you really want to, uh, you really want to be ready when we're called to account before our Lord for how we've managed what he's given to us. Well, this course is for you as well. Or maybe you say, well, I really don't have to worry much about money. And the best I know, I've been studying God's word and living for his glory and managing my finances. Um, I would ask you, maybe this, is a, this might be an area of ministry for you. And this course might, uh, might provide, it won't prepare you for that, but it will certainly give you a vision for it. Uh, lately, I've been doing uh, budget coaching for Crown Financial with people all over the country. And I'll tell you, we're overwhelmed. The need out there is great. So, uh, so I think just about everybody might benefit uh, from this in one way or another. I have some late news. I think it's okay to say uh, uh, the $45 price just went down to 10 <laughs> Hope that's okay. <laughs> and uh, I see I still have 45 seconds left. So, 
is, is, is the uh, RCG 101 course uh, running at the same time? I'm competing with them. <laughs> they may cut my mic off here, but when Ida and I took RCG 101, we were kind of impatient, so we took it online. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> oh, you had the mic button, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, certainly reach out to me if you have any questions, and uh, we'll see you, see you there, hopefully. Thank you very much, Gary. Oh, we are really looking forward to your class. And um, you, you can take his encouragement with a grain of salt, too. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think he pointed out, you know, whether you've been married for a long time and you think you don't have any need for financial planning, whether you are married and you've had difficulties, and this is a question for you, if you ever had difficulties in your marriage that are concerning finances, then I'd encourage you to come as well. If you're just starting out in your career, I encourage you to come. If you are just starting out in marriage, I encourage you to come. If you've been married for a long time, you think nothing is wrong with my finances, I'm all good, then I encourage you to come. This is an opportunity to learn to be disciples of Christ and then to disciple others in that. And then it's an opportunity for us to learn how do we help build God's kingdom because he does that through practical means too. So encourage you to do that. And then before we get started, I have one question for you. Anybody here would you like to, now if we don't, that's okay, but would anybody here like to stand up and give the answer to last week's catechism question? The question was, what is God? So anybody, anybody feel bold enough to do that? And I'll give you a little incentive. You'll get a free book at our resource wall there So of your choosing. So if you'd like to, anybody want to do that? Anybody want to stand up? Be bold enough to do that? Go for it. What is God? Justice, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. You almost were perfect there. We'll give you credit for that, even though you're my son. I'll give you complete credit for that. You're, he's eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in all of those things. So let's recite together. This is going to be the question for this coming week. We love to recite that together. So the question is, how many persons are there in God? And I think we're going to have this. Do we have that on the overheads? Wonderful. How many persons are there in God? So let's recite this together. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. I almost feel like saying amen after that, but this, the, 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 what we are walking through are, are amazing truths about God that are meant to affect our hearts and minds, to inspire us to, to love God more. So as we're going through this catechism, I encourage you to keep that in mind and encourage you to read the scripture that comes along with it as well. And then to let that provoke grander view of God and his work in this world. So turn your Bibles to... Chapter 15 of Judges, chapter 15 of Judges. We are continuing on in the book of Judges. We've been going through that together as a church. And we're going to continue on for about the next six or so weeks. So turn to Judges chapter 15. 
This is God's holy inspired word. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I should be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear, I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And then he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear by me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord, and he said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he had drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called Enhakore, which is at Levi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to speak to us as, as you spoke when you wrote these words for the good of your people, for your people's instruction. Lord, would you instruct us? Would you train us? Would you teach us? Would you help us see you as our great Redeemer? God, I pray that you would be at work through your words powerfully by your Holy Spirit to make us alive to you to revive our souls, to refresh us, to renew us in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Siegfried and Roy, they were known worldwide for many years. I think they, they were doing magic acts and performing for over 25 years. They were known not only for magic, but they had tigers on stage with them. And then in 2003, it was their final performance, but not by choice. 
they had a tiger that Roy was trying to get to do a trick, and the tiger did not comply. The tiger was wanting nothing to do with what Roy was telling him to do. And so Roy just went over and tapped the tiger on the nose. The tiger didn't respond well. The tiger then came up, grabbed Roy by the neck, and dragged him off stage. For a minute, people thought it was an act, but, but really, Roy was struggling for his life. The tiger was reminding him who was really in charge. He was not a pet, nor should he be treated like a pet. He was not tame. He was a tiger. But Roy had gotten used to treating him like ta- a tame animal. He'd gotten used to treating him like a, like a pet. But forgetting that the tiger was not a pet almost got Roy killed that day. When we read the story of Samson, we need to remember that, that Samson is not just a man. Yes, he is a man. He was a man in every way like us. But he wasn't in this role like a man only. He wasn't a mere man. He was called as God's deliverer. He was not to be treated like anybody else. So when we come to Scripture and we read stories in Judges of God's Deliverers, we are reading unique people in redemptive history. We're reading about people who were ordained by God in unique ways to bring about his deliverance. And in fact, that's what the angel prophesied, that that God would begin to save his people through Samson, the deliverer. One of seven in a line of deliverers, which culminates in in a true deliverer, Jesus. And yet, people made a mistake in relating to Samson. They related to him like he was just a man. They forgot his calling. They forgot who God had called him to be. They forgot that he was God's chosen deliverer. And what we're going to see is there's, there's mistakes that happen because of that. The very first thing that we see in, in the first eight verses is that the deliverer takes revenge. And so we see the revenge of the deliverer. And then, and then, and then verses 9 through 13, we're going to see that the deliverer is rejected. And we see the rejection of the deliverer. And then we see in the very final verses, in, in verses 14 and following down to verse 20, that, that there is the redemption in the deliverer. But they didn't relate to him that way. They didn't relate to Samson that way. And when we read these stories, we can often put ourselves in Samson's shoes. We're never really meant to do that. We can learn lessons from him. But we're not to think of uh, ourselves as Samson. Instead, we're to see ourselves really as more like the Philistines and more like the people who, of Israel who rejected him. What we see is that his own wife and his father-in-law, they, they didn't take into account who he truly was, that who he was called to be. They treated him lightly. And that's what we're going to see in the first eight verses. We're going to see that they're the revenge of the deliverer because they failed to treat him as he should be treated as God's deliverer. And so we see the revenge of the deliverer. Now you might think, oh my goodness, isn't he just mad and taking vengeance? Well, he is doing that in his role as God's deliverer, which is unique. So this is not a call that's saying, hey, it's okay for us to take revenge We're never meant to read the scripture that way. But instead, we're meant to see that we shouldn't treat God's deliverer lightly because God's deliverer will have his revenge. So this account of Simpson all the way through, it's a story really about God and God's redemption and God's deliverer and how God works and how we can relate to or should relate to his deliverer. Samson was a very flawed man. He was disobedient in many ways. We saw last week that, that his own disobedience, his own sin, did not stop God working through him. Nor did the impossible situation that he faced, of a, facing a lion, that, that didn't stop the fact that God was at work through him. 
Nothing was able to thwart God's work in and through Samson, despite impossible situations, despite difficult people, despite his own sin. And now we're going to see in this chapter that how people relate to God's deliverer matters. And it's meant to provoke us and ask us, how do we relate? How do we treat God's deliverer lightly? But not, not Samson, not any mere man, but how do we treat his ultimate deliverer, Christ? Because Samson was a forerunner pointing us to Christ. Well, what we see is that they, they didn't treat him with respect. He goes back and says, after some days of the wheat harvest, Samson goes back. I'm not sure why Samson was away from his wife for so long. He had, he had left in anger because his wife had betrayed him. His wife had shown that she wasn't really loyal to him. His, his wife instead had shown that she was loyal to her own people more than her husband. I don't know why Samson left, but here we see that he's coming back to her. And he's bringing a goat. Now I know the Valentine's Day is coming up, but when you're trying to romance your wife in today's context, it probably doesn't translate. You know, don't, don't bring a goat to Valentine's unless you're preparing a meal of goat, and that's different. But don't bring a goat to Valentine's Day. He, he brings a goat to his wife because he was bringing a kind of a peace offering, trying to make restitution, trying to say, hey, um, let's have a good meal together and then let's be back together. Probably as an apologetic offering of sorts, and he was headed to her room, but her father stops him and wouldn't let him go into her. What he doesn't know is something that has transpired that, that the reader knows at, at verse 20 of chapter 14. In Judges 14, 20, it tells us, and Samson's wife, this is, this is where the reader is led into a secret before Samson knows it, and so you're reading through things, and Samson is unaware of the fact that it says, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who'd been his best man. Talk about a bummer. I, I couldn't imagine. His wife had already betrayed him by telling his secret to the Philistines, and now without him knowing, his, his wife was given to his, his companion, his best friend, and his best man. He was betrayed not only by his, his wife, he was betrayed by his father-in-law who arranged that. In fact, his wife may or may not have had any say, but, but his father-in-law did, and his best man surely had a say. His wife had been taken from him. His best man was supposed to affirm and witness the marriage and to uphold the marriage. They, he willfully, knowingly betrayed Samson. I mean, talk about a gut punch. Put yourself in Samson's shoes. I think sometimes... We look at Samson as, oh, he's such a horrible person, but I think our sins far outweigh his. We have his whole life is synopsized really into four chapters. And yes, he was messed up. Yes, he was flawed. Yes, he made mistakes. But I can't imagine how we would respond to it in times like this. We probably have gone off the deep end as well if we come back to our spouse and they've been given away. And his father-in-law's excuse was, I, I thought you really hated her. Thought you really hated her, intensely hated her. And so then he does something which is strange for us, and he, he offers the younger sister and says, isn't she prettier anyway? To Samson's credit, he didn't take his father-in-law up on the offer. He wasn't merely driven by his libido, and he didn't marry the younger sister, but imagine he was crushed. Imagine he was angry. He likely wanted to make them pay. Verse 3 says, this time I'm, I'll be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. You see, the Philistines, they wrong God's deliverer. They, those who wrong God's deliverer will pay the price. 
They wronged God's deliverer. They took him lightly. They rejected him. They, they refused to be faithful. I like how Barry Webb, when he, he talks about this passage, he says, given the perfect alignment with God's declared purpose for Samson, it is more than human, and his more than human character were clearly meant to attribute Samson's remarkable single-handed devastation of the Philistines to God, whose agent he is. Indeed, the logic of the story from beginning to end requires us to do this, even when, as here, there's no explicit reference to divine agency, as Samson himself will affirm in 1617, the secret of his strength at every point has been his separation to God. And right now, Samson is acting as God's deliverer. He has been wronged. He has been offended. He has been misused, mistreated. But he doesn't take his revenge out on them directly. But he does want to make them pay by taking away their livelihood. And so they took his wife. They took his ability to be fruitful. Now he takes away their fruitfulness. He repays them in like kind. And so he takes, his feet is, is pretty amazing in and of itself. There's not a lot of time spent on it, but he takes 300 foxes. Now, I don't know where he found 300 foxes. That must have taken a long time. This guy was deliberate. He planned out his revenge. He took time, and it took skill and effort. And I don't know how he kept them from biting him. I mean, I can just imagine all the details that go into it, catching 300 foxes. First of all, finding, maybe they're jackals, but whatever they were, finding them, collecting them, tying them together, putting a torch in the middle. I mean, Samson, his revenge was plotted. It was planned. It was, it was reasoned. And he turns these 300 foxes loose, and they go all over the fields, all over the vineyards, all over the olive orchards. They're pulling back and forth. Imagine one fox might want to go to his den, another fox wants to go to his den. And so they are all over haphazardly, burning everything everywhere. It would have been chaotic. It would have been hard to stop. His destruction would have been devastating to that area. So these, these fire foxes, they light up the standing grain. They light up all the grain that's in storage. They light up all the olive orchards are well. And so this would have been a huge loss to them financially, not only of money, but also provision, food. They, they would have wiped them out. He was removing their fruitfulness and their ability to provide. They took the redeemer, the deliverer, lightly, and he had his revenge. Then the Philistines, they, they react to him and they say, well, who did this thing? And then they say, well, it was the Timnites' fault, really, because he took away Sam, <clears throat> Samson's wife and gave her to another. And so the Philistines do something interesting. They, they try to appease Samson, but it's a, too little too late. And so they try to appease Samson, and, but they, they do the wrong thing. They go and they burn Samson's father's-in-law's house, and his, his wife is burned as well. They meted out their own form of brutal justice. Maybe they were hoping that if they could carry out justice, they could appease the deliverer. Maybe it may have tried to think it would make things better, but it made things even worse. And Samson says, if this, if this is what you're going to do, if this is how you act, he says, then I swear I'm going to be avenged on you. And he takes out his vengeance, and, and he, he's like the character in every Liam Neeson movie. My kids are asking me if I saw this Ice Road movie that he made. I don't even know what that's about. But I was like, no, because I, once you've seen one Liam Neeson movie, you've seen them all. He he he's kind of does the same thing. He, he gets mad because somebody offends him, and he takes revenge out on them. But what we see here is the deliverer taking revenge out on the people who have taken him lightly. And have offended him. It says he, he struck them hip and thigh. That's, a, that's an idiom to, to mean that it like, comes from wrestling and warfare. What it means is that he, he struck them ruthlessly, completely. He, he completely 
obliterated the people who had done that. He had a certain set of skills, I guess, if you will. And, and what we're meant to see is that, imperfect as he was, those who take the deliverer lightly, one day will pay. All who take God's true and perfect deliverer lightly, all who treat Jesus with contempt, all who wrong Jesus, will, will ultimately face his perfect justice, his perfect wrath. And it will not be undeserved in any way, but completely deserved. But it's not just the Philistines who fail to treat Samson as a deliverer. His own people do too, and they reject him. And that's what we see in verses 9 to 13 is, is the rejection of the deliverer. Samson, he's going back home, and he's camped out now in a cave in the rocks. And the Philistines are going to carry out the ancient justice of an eye for an eye. And, and they send this posse that go out after him. And they go and camp out in Judah, and they raid the area around Lehi, around when he was staying. They didn't know where he was, so they figured they'd take it out on everybody around him. And so the people of Judah, they come up to him and say, well, what's going on? Why are you harassing us? Why are you coming up against us? And the Philistines tell the people of Israel, now it's the tribe of Judah, by the way. They tell the tribe of Judah that they want to bind the one that God has raised up as their deliverer. How do you, how do you think that the people of Judah should have reacted? Well, it shouldn't have been like they did. They, they want to bind up Samson to... Do what Samson did to them, to him. And the men of Judah, they decide, you know what? One man, it's worth relieving the pressure on us. And so they send out 3,000 men. Now, here's the thing about that. They had 3,000 3, men immediately ready to go. Why didn't they just stand up to the Philistines? Why didn't they fight the Philistines? Why didn't they defend the one who God had said was going to be their deliverer, their savior? Why didn't they come to his aid? Why didn't they come to his side? Why didn't they at least take his side or seek him out to be their rescuer and deliverer? They, they were ignoring God's calling on him. You know, no doubt his, his fame had already spread throughout Israel because they take 3,000 people. So they already knew that, that God's power and his might were on Samson. They knew who Samson really was because otherwise they wouldn't have taken 3,000 men to go and get him. And that's also an indictment on them as well. They knew who he was and yet they sought to turn him over. They could have easily defended him. They could have said, hey, Samson, could you defend us? You're our deliverer. God's called you. We're going to follow you. And so the question that the reader would have if you're an Israelite is, why did they do this? And, and the interesting thing about it is, at the beginning of the book of Judges, the very tribe that God called to go in and take dominion over the land of Canaan, to, to deliver the people from the foreigner, to take the lead in doing that, was the tribe of Judah. So we, now we see that instead of Judah taking the lead in expelling the foreigners, and expelling God's enemies, they are embracing God's enemies. The spiral of judges has gone down so far that the very people, the tribe that God called to crush the enemies, has embraced the enemies and is willing to give over the deliverer. Now, why would they give up the very one who was promised to save them? Well, you know what? They, they rejected him for the very reason that people reject Christ today. Because, you know, Jesus makes things difficult for us. 
It makes it so that the people of the world don't like you. It makes people of the world uncomfortable. It may actually bring oppression. It might bring suffering. It might bring persecution. It might bring hardship. It might bring difficulty. You might lose your job. You'll lose your reputation. It might be uncomfortable around your neighbors. Being a Christian means we battle God's enemies instead of embracing them. And they come to Samson. They correct him. In effect, and they say, don't you know that the Philistines are our rulers? They had accepted the enemies of God as the rightful rulers. And they were looking to appease God's enemies. So they say, why'd you provoke them and do this to us? Bring, you brought down their wrath on our heads. Everything was fine. Why are you making trouble for us by stirring up the hornet's nest? And, 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 and on the surface level, that seems to make sense, right? It's reasonable because, after all, who wants to bring trouble onto their own heads? But it's a sign that God's people have given up. And the very people who are supposed to lead the charge in conquering the enemies have completely given up and acquiesced to the Philistines ruling over them. Instead of fighting them, they're welcoming them as their rulers. They chose the, the easier, more expedient route of appeasement. They chose the easier route of compromise, of accepting of living like the world being among them and just not making waves and isn't that what we see in the book of revelation when jesus comes to the church and he corrects the church says no you're, you're lukewarm i want to spit you out you're, you're living as if the world is okay you're living and you're no different from the world around you they chose the easier more expedient round of appeasement David, Will, David Jackman, he says in his commentary, he says, this is the depth to which Israel has been prepared to sink. Their consuming desire for peace and quiet means that the nation which affirms their, that their God is the king of the whole earth is quite content to live in the land God has given them as an insecure tenant of a foreign power, devoted to the worship of pagan idols. He says, can you believe it? But you know, often we are more like the people of Israel in this story. You know, how, how do we acquiesce? How do we appease those in the world around us? The question for us that we need to consider as we're reading this passage is, how, how have we accepted the, the world's rule over us? I'm not talking about politically. But the rule of power, of influence, of money, of fame, of all the things the world is ruled by, do we accept those things as normative in our own lives? Are we living for those things? Because we don't want to make waves. We afraid a rock in the boat to stand up to God's enemies, those false gods. And have we made peace with the world and have we made alliances with those who are opposed to God at the expense of defending or coming alongside or calling out to the Savior In response to the question of why he's done what he has, Samson says that he's done that to them as they did to him. And it seems the inference is that he has done as any self-respecting man would, but the men of Judah seem to have no self-respect, no sense of honor. They give in to the Philistine demands. They sacrifice the honor of defending their countrymen. They sacrifice obedience to God. They sacrifice their own Savior for the sake of his expediency. And they don't try to hide it. 
They're like, yeah, it would be easier. We want to bind you. And so they come up to him, 3,000 men. They, they obviously knew he was powerful, that God had empowered him to be the deliverer. So 3,000 men go. And Samson says something that's kind of curious. He says, hey, swear to me. He says, I'm not going to go with you unless you swear that you're not going to try to hurt me. I don't think he was afraid of them. He was afraid of what he might do to his own countrymen. They, they promised, no, we're just going to bind you and give you into their hands. We won't kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes. They brought him up from the rock. Michael Wilcox says, Now even Judah is anxious only to live and let live. And would rather bind and betray its Savior than have him upset the balance of things. And the Philistines see him coming. He's bound up. And the Philistines, they roar. They, they cry out. They're, they're yelling, shouting loudly. Just like that roaring lion that come up to Samson in chapter 14, who God tore apart through Samson. They shout. They think they have the victory over God's deliverer, but Samson isn't done for like they think. Instead, what we see in verses 15 to 20 is the redemption of the deliverer. We see that the redemption of the deliverer. Samson is being carried into the camp. They've bound his arms. They've bound his hands. I don't know if it's behind his back or not, but they, they bound his arms. He couldn't move. And yet, as soon as they shouted, as soon as they thought that they had the victory, God's spirit rushes on him. And you know what God's spirit does? God's spirit burned away, broke every chain, broke the bonds, broke these ropes. And he says they became like flax that was on fire. It just kind of fell off. And it just kind of melted off of his hands. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he sets free. He breaks our bonds. I can imagine now Samson, he's looking around the camp and he sees this fresh jawbone of a donkey and he picks it up and then he kills a thousand men empowered by the Spirit in hand-to-hand combat. This is an overwhelming victory of epic proportions over the enemy of God's people. Now that that victory didn't last. The, The victory that Christ has won is a lasting victory. But this was still an amazing, impressive victory that that God's people should have rallied around him. But here's the interesting thing. You don't even see Judah talked about. You don't see these 3,000 men who brought him to the Philistines. They aren't even mentioned. This is Samson single-handedly delivering. And he strikes them down. And then he has a little song he composes. And he sings. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. He rejoices in this victory. With, with the jawbone of a donkey, he's made donkeys out of heaps and heaps of them. And, and when he finishes speaking, he says in verse 17, he throws away the jawbone of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth Lehi, which means jawbone hill. And, you know, fighting... I know one person alone in, in hand-to-hand combat, if you've ever watched UFC or something like that, you see that after just a few minutes, they're completely exhausted, wiped out. Samson now has fought a 1,000 people. It's no surprise that he is weary, that he is feeling like he's about to die, and, and it's taken a huge physical toll on his body. And it would have taken a while to kill a 1,000 people in hand-to-hand combat with a jawbone. The Spirit's empowering didn't make him impervious to the weakness of humanity, and he must have been insanely thirsty. In his moment of greatest victory, the deliverer was thirsty. 
makes me think of the true deliverer in his moment of victory on the cross when he was thirsty. Samson, he turns rightly and calls out to God and he turns and he calls upon Yahweh. and He says that Yahweh has granted this great salvation. He knows that he didn't do it on his own. It's not by his own might, not by his own ability. And since now God's empowered him, he's so weak and thirsty and about to die, he prays and he says, shall I not die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And what he's saying is, God, I, you gave me this great victory. Don't now let the Philistines claim victory um, by taking my dead body and acting like they had victory over me. You might think he's only self-concerned here. No, but he's, he's concerned for God's glory, for God's fame. He's concerned that if God's brought this great salvation, don't let that be wasted by people thinking that they had mastery over him because he died of thirst. So he cries out, and God's merciful. God's gracious. He splits open the hollow place of the ground. He causes a spring of water to come up. And so no sooner when Samson had cried out and he asked God, if he was going to die, then God answers his cry, opens this hollow in the ground and causes water to gush out. And it says, when, when Samson drank it, his spirit returned and he revived. Yeah, that's what God's water does. That's what God's refreshing does. That's what God's provision does. It says the, the place was called an Hakore, which really just means the spring of the one who cried out. Barry Webb says, like Israel in the wilderness... Samson's been saved by the provision of miraculous water. The naming of the spring in Hakore, Caller Spring, underscores significance of the moment, memorializes it for future generations. In fact, it was still there at Lehi, and that writer's day suggests that it may be a spring that never ran dry and became the symbol of profound truth. However bleak things may be, there is always hope for those who call on Yahweh, including Israel and us. And then there's the ending of the story just kind of comes to fruition, says, and then he judged Israel 20 more years. But Samson's deliverance wasn't complete, and we're going to see that his story that ends in chapter 16, his redemption wasn't complete. The whole time, it was always in the day of the Philistines. Someone else would have to finish what he began. Samson was not the ultimate deliverer. He's not the final deliverer. Neither was the one that he pointed forward to was, was David. David was not the final, the ultimate deliverer. And, and then, in fact, John the Baptist was not the ultimate one, but yet Jesus is the final, ultimate deliverer. He's the one who is the true deliverer that it matters how we respond to him. So as New Testament Christians, we're meant to read this and saying, how, how do we respond to deliver? Because how we respond to God's true deliverer, it matters. Jesus came as the ultimate and final deliverer, and yet how do people treat him? They, they treated him with contempt. They treated him lightly. His own people rejected him. And in fact, his own people bound him and took him to the Romans, turned him over to their very enemy who was occupying their land. A complete culmination, really, of the Philistines pointing to the Romans, the fact that that. God's people turned their true and ultimate deliverer over to their enemy. And yet Samson, he, he offered himself willingly in order to rescue his people. Jesus says that you, you wouldn't have been able to, to take me unless I gave myself over to you. He, he offered himself willingly. He submitted himself to men. He offered himself up on the cross. He was the ultimate peace 
for our sake, Jesus became weak. And he cried out. The difference between Samson and Jesus is that Samson cries out to God when he's thirsty and God gave him water. Jesus, because he is taking all of the punishment and the penalty for sin as our deliverer that, that we deserve, when he cried out to God, he didn't get water, he got a bitter cup. And Jesus, instead of killing everyone, he himself was killed in our place. The reason why he was not given water is so that we could be given his water. We might be given what he deserves. And so that's why when Jesus stood up in, in John 7, 37, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus calls himself the river of the water of life. The water of life that enlivens us and fills us with his Holy Spirit and that revives us and refreshes us. Now, because of Jesus, all who call on God's name in thirst can come and receive of him. Receive his living water. As the greater Samson, no bonds could hold Jesus. The bonds of death, the bonds of hell, the bonds of the grave could not hold him. When, when all the world, when the devil thought that he had overcome Jesus, and I'm sure all of hell shouted, Jesus broke forth out of the grave in victory because no bonds could hold him. Jesus was resurrected by the power of the Spirit, breaking every bond of sin, sin and death and shame in the grave. He's conquered God's enemies. He reigns victorious as God's forever deliverer in whom we can trust. And then the question for us is, how will we relate to him? Because how we relate to God's deliverer matters. In fact, it's actually the only thing that really truly matters in the end. The question for us this morning is, how will we relate to Christ, our deliverer? Will we treat him as a loving husband? Will we embrace him? Or will we reject him? We're called to trust in him as our deliverer. Because our deliverer breaks every bond. Our deliverer offers water. Our deliverer offers us his own Holy Spirit to empower us. How will we treat him? How will we respond? Let's pray. Can the band come up? Thank you.